All right. I don't know about you, but my week this last week was rather crazy. Um, you can imagine that probably after last week's sermon topic. We, if you weren't here last week, I taught through Matthew 19, 1 through 12, where Jesus was asked about the topic of divorce. And so he responds to the topic, and uh, I taught through that passage. And what I would like to do is just make a few clarifying comments this morning to bring us all to a place of closure with that passage. Last week I mentioned that there are a few ways to understand the clause in Matthew 19, but for fornication. And I only gave one of those ways to understand the clause in the sermon. I intended to give one more, but forgot in that moment to do so. So I want to provide one more this morning, keeping in mind that the two that I'm providing you and I'll mention a third later, but these are not exhaustive of all the possibilities for that little clause, but for fornication. Now, as a reminder, the first possibility I ask you to ponder is the possibility that Matthew is reflecting on Jesus' perspective on his own birth and the situation that faced Joseph. Because it was supposed that Jesus was born out of wedlock, this situation of Joseph and Mary um, Joseph was then seeking to divorce Mary because of his perception of what she had done. And uh, he sought that in the betrothal period. That could be the allowance for divorce that Jesus is referring to. But the other view I intended to share is simply that in keeping with Jesus, the spirit of Jesus' words, namely that marriage is not to be separated, divorce and separation can occur or is allowed because of the hardness of heart when sexual immorality is present. Now, in this particular view, the allowance applies to divorce, but not to remarriage. And that is the historical position that was unequivocally held by the church fathers closest to Matthew and his writing these words. So wherever we land on the clause there in Matthew 19, one thing is clear. If we make divorce a God-condoned solution for a difficult marriage, then we are much more in line with the spirit of the Pharisees' question in Matthew 19 than Jesus' response. Because Jesus is wanting his followers to return to God's intention for marriage. So I want to state again the position of your leadership here at Southside. If you marry, divorce is really not a God-condoned option. If separation or divorce occurs, because it cannot be avoided due to the hardness of heart associated with sexual immorality, then remarriage is not the kingdom course of action. And so we find no strong biblical support for divorce under any circumstance, and divorce is only allowed because of adultery. And we find no strong support for remarriage, and thus both will be greatly discouraged in our church. And what will be encouraged is that in all your choices, you seek to honor Christ as much as possible. Now I want to address one important question that I think needs an answer this morning. The question is, what if you don't agree with the leadership of the church in this matter? And I just want to encourage you that as long as you hold a biblical position on the subject, we can all move forward in the same direction. In other words, this is not an area of doctrine that we will make an essential doctrine in our church. This doctrine on this particular passage and subject is not of the same importance 
in our church as doctrines like salvation by grace alone through faith alone or the inerrancy of Scripture. And there are really two primary biblical positions that are possible regarding this matter. And what we need to do is just walk respectfully together in the same direction of honoring the Lord in marriage. And that's what we need to do as a church family. Now the other biblical position is that divorce and remarriage can occur in the case of adultery, although neither is encouraged. Now that's a simplified representation, but if that is your position, which certainly is a possible biblical position, we can move forward together in following Jesus as long as you agree about God's heart towards marriage that God doesn't encourage or approve of divorce, and that at most God would allow divorce or separation for unfaithfulness. And in that allowance, a possibility for remarriage is provided, but biblically, remarriage is often unwise to pursue because it could be better to remain single, undivided in your service in the kingdom, honoring the covenant you made, even in the breaking of the marriage covenant by another. And thus you would be clearly reflecting the gospel of Christ in your life by your continued faithfulness. And the key to us walking together as a church with even different views is that we are all seeking to reflect Christ in all that we do. And that's how we move forward together. Now taking all this in consideration, if you are divorced and remarried for any reason, you are not stuck in a perpetual state of adultery. That's something you need to hear me say. You can honor the Lord in your marriage. The way I think about this is if a a woman conceives a child outside of marriage, the conception, uh, the act of that conception is certainly sinful, but the right response of that lady is to become the godliest mom she can become. Just because the conception was not what God would call ideal and certainly sinful, does not mean you respond with sin in kind to try to rectify that. And so in the same way, if a divorce and remarriage is is sin, then the greatest response of either the wife or the husband is to become the godliest wife and the godliest husband you can become in the situation that you're in. You can honor God in that marriage, and you should. Now, if you're divorced and you're not remarried, then I want to encourage you to seek to understand God's heart towards you and your situation. God forgives all sins for anyone who trusts in Christ. And if you sin in your divorce and trust in Christ, you can find forgiveness. And if you've sinned in your divorce and reconciliation is possible, with your spouse, then seek after that. If you cannot seek reconciliation, then I encourage you to seek to live for the Lord by remaining single, undivided in your devotion to the Lord. If you are convinced that your circumstances represent those that biblically may allow for remarriage, then I encourage you to proceed with great caution, knowing that the course of action could bring greater trouble into your life, creating a distraction from glorifying the Lord that would otherwise not have been present in your life. What we need to all do is make sure that we are all together moving towards Christ 
and seeking to glorify him. Enough said. Okay, if you have more questions about this difficult topic, I am happy to entertain them. What I would encourage you not to do is to let something just kind of stir up in your heart and come out in ways that are not really seeking Jesus, okay? So please, let's work together as a church family through a very difficult topic, and let's just move towards Christ together, even in our differences. We can do that. I know we can. And uh, all this to say, I'm sure you can imagine the craziness of my week. And I found great comfort, great comfort in the disciples because I suspect that their experience of what Jesus said was somewhat similar to some of ours. You know, the disciples, they responded to Jesus by saying, well, if this is what it's like, then it's better that a man just not get married. I mean, they've totally missed the point there, but they're responding with this, this shock to what Jesus says. It's, it's like they have an opportunity here, based on what Jesus says, to become a little bit distracted, a little bit disoriented. Uh, it's certain that their response says that they are in shock about what Jesus says. And I don't know about you, but my week, it just seemed like there were times that this week I felt a little disoriented, a little bit distracted by what was going on. And I just found that Matthew chapter 19, 13 through 15 was exactly the medicine for my soul. So let's see what Jesus Christ does in Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to Jesus in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let those kids come to me and stop hindering them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after he laid his hands on them, he departed from there. And Matthew 19, 13 through 15, we see a series of rebukes. And this first rebuke is the rebuke of the disciples towards these parents who are bringing their children to Jesus Christ so that Jesus could pray for them. Now think about this. The disciples are telling these moms and dads who are bringing their little kids for the Son of God to pray for them, they can't do that. Now that's a pretty good indication these guys aren't thinking right. I mean, they're keeping little kids from coming to Jesus so that he could pray for them. It just does not add up. It's a perplexing it's a perplexing action that the disciples are making. What makes it even more perplexing is that not too long ago in Matthew 18, we saw Jesus bring in front of the disciples a little kid and said to the disciples, unless you become like children, you're not even entering into the kingdom of God. Now, it would stand to reason at that point that the disciples would conclude, seems like Jesus is pretty favorable towards kids. I don't know what the disciples are thinking. Maybe they're thinking that this exchange with Jesus is much too serious for kids to be involved in. Let's keep them away right now until we figure out what's really going on here. Maybe it's that they thought Jesus was far too busy. Whatever it was that got them distracted and disoriented, maybe, I mean, it's kind of funny, but maybe it was the whole thing about the eunuch. I mean, if you're sitting there and Jesus says, if you become a eunuch, for the sake of the kingdom, that's a good thing. I mean, that's probably going to get you a little disoriented in that moment. 
Whatever's going on there, the disciples are acting in a way towards these parents and kids that, are, that it's just not in line with the heartbeat of Jesus. And so Jesus sees this whole thing unfold, and he says, you need to let them come over here and stop keeping them from me. Jesus issues a rebuke when he sees the disciples rebuking the parents for bringing the kids. If you can picture this scene in your mind, the disciples somehow are trying to keep these parents and kids away from Jesus. Jesus sees that this is unfolding, says, hey, let them get over here. And so the disciples part away and and all these little kids run to Jesus and he begins to just love on them, lay his hands on them and pray for them. It's an incredible scene and one in which Jesus wanted clearly the disciples to know they were wrong in keeping those kids from Jesus. And what I think is interesting about this is once again the disciples have seemed to become distracted from seeing things through the eyes of Jesus. They are no longer seeing things from what I'll term this morning a kingdom perspective. They're not seeing things from God's perspective. They've become distracted and disoriented and now they're functioning and acting in a way that is totally disconnected from what Jesus Christ has already communicated them to them about. They're just disconnected from the kingdom perspective. They're not functioning in a way that says, I see the way God sees things. And that's how I am now going to act and operate. They missed it. And it got them in trouble. You see, if they had seen it, if they'd been watching and seeing things unfold as God sees them, you know what they would have done? When the parents came with the children, they would have brought those kids straight to the front of the line with Jesus and said, Jesus, here's these kids. We know you love them. We know that they got a special place in your heart. Here they are. But they didn't do that because they were not seeing things from God's perspective. Got them in trouble. Whenever Jesus Christ gives a rebuke in Scripture, it is really wise to pay attention to that rebuke. It's always better to pay attention to someone else getting rebuked and learn from that, then have to get rebuked yourself. A lot of you have gone through your first week of school. Are you excited about that? It's a mixed crowd this morning. (laughs) You know, the first week of school is always that week where a good teacher is looking for an opportunity to place a rebuke. You see, because there's always one or two students in the class the first week who are wanting to push the envelope and see how far they can take the class and see how disruptive they can be before they get in trouble. And they just kind of, they're just trying to feel out, you know, life transition from summer freedom and now school bondage. And so they're trying to push a little bit. And uh, so they're doing that. So a good teacher comes in that situation ready to take down one special student to have swift and decisive judgment fall on one student so that all the other students can see, if you mess with me, your life will end. Because the teacher, the teacher knows at that point, if they can do that one rebuke for one kid, the wise students will understand, it's a lot better for that kid to go down than for me to go down. I'm going to behave, you see? And what I'm hoping this morning is that all of us will be like a wise student will hear Jesus' rebuke to the disciples and will respond to it. So we don't find ourselves in a situation of having to have His Spirit rebuke us because we're missing it. Will you be a wise student today? You see, Jesus wants us to move to the place where we see things 
that are happening around us, no matter what circumstances they are, from a kingdom perspective, the way God would have us see them. So if you're in a difficult circumstance today, if you're in a challenging experience, if you're in a frustrating um, relationship, if, you, if you're just in a situation, you're just like, man, this is what I want to encourage you to do today is fight towards seeing things from God's perspective. The disciples were not seeing things from God's perspective. It got them in trouble. And I'm here to tell you, what Jesus does in this passage, you need to listen to so it doesn't get you into trouble. It's just a whole lot better to go through life seeing things from God's perspective and responding to the things that happen around you because you understand what God sees. As you know, as many of you, this summer I was able to go on a little trip with my two boys and we went camping together. And one of the things that happened on the trip, you heard about this if you were here that Sunday I talked about, we had a little car trouble. You know, we broke down, and I'm telling you, it was the most frustrating experience. It's hot outside. We're sweating in the car. You roll down the windows, it's even hotter. I mean, it's just ridiculous. We're just drenched. I'm having to lean up off the seat because my back is just soaked. It's just nasty. We're driving. We're pulling over the side. It's terrible. I'm trying to get a mechanic on the phone. I can't get one to come out as far as I'm going in the middle of nowhere. And I'm just getting so frustrated. And they get some guy on the phone, and he's saying, well, it's probably this. We need to hook up this. And the other guy said, no, it's not that. And the mechanics are arguing with me, and I'm the mediator because neither one would agree what's going on with my truck. And I'm just about to blow a gasket, you know. And so I call a friend, and I say, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? And this is what he says to me, something like this. He says, just might have an opportunity here to share about Christ. <laughs> That's exactly what happened, you know? And the flesh is me is like, well, you get in your car and you drive out here and you share with Christ while you fix my car. You know, and I, I mean, that's what my flesh is wanting to say. But, but in that moment when he says that, it's just like, okay, I am really not having a kingdom perspective right now. And it'd probably be a whole lot better if I did. And that little gentle rebuke jarred me into seeing an opportunity. And God did unfold some pretty cool things after that. I'm not going to go into all the details about that, but we did get to share Christ. And it was incredible. It was amazing. I promise you, none of that would have happened had I not heard a little rebuke. You need to make sure you have God's perspective on this. Now, I, I hate to admit the fact that I have a lot more experience in having a fleshly perspective than I do in the kingdom perspective. I don't know if you can relate with me on that, but I find myself oftentimes getting frustrated, wondering why this is happening, thinking this is unfair, and these things should be different, and if... God cared, it wouldn't be like this. And I start to have these feelings and, and, and Jesus' rebuke here to the disciples, let the kids come to me, is a great reminder to us that it's a lot better to live life with a kingdom perspective. If you can live life with a kingdom perspective, you're going to find a whole lot less reasons to complain, become bitter and angry. You're going to find that right in the middle of the circumstances of your life, however they unfold, you can see God's goodness and His grace 
and his provision. What's interesting here is that Jesus is rebuking his disciples in a second way. And the second way he rebukes his disciples is the way that all of us can maintain a kingdom perspective. This is the answer. You found yourself in a position say, I, I, I can relate. I want to have a better kingdom perspective. I want to move that way. Jesus' little rebuke here, the disciples, is the answer. Look with me at the passage here. The last phrase that Jesus says in verse 14, he says, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's a rebuke. The first rebuke is, let the kids come to me, bozos. The second rebuke is, hey, guys, do you remember that to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven? I haven't changed the way I'm operating. Humility is still the way to operate in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus Christ, when he brought that kid in front of the disciples back in Matthew 18, he said to the disciples, unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He encourages them to see here in Matthew 19, the kingdom of heaven is going to be made up of a whole lot of people that are just like these little kids. You need to become just like these little kids. I love little kids. One of my favorite things about showing up at church on Sunday morning, walking through the hallways, is my interaction with little kids. I love uh, when they feel comfortable coming up to me and talking to me. And there's one particular boy who came up to me several times this morning, and that's true, it's at least two or three times, and multiple times he wanted me to feel his muscle. And uh, that's a good thing to do. And when that happens, do you need to make sure you say these words. That feels bigger than the last time I felt it. That's the way you handle that, man. You make friends really quick. I love spending time hanging out with kids. There are some things about kids that are so exemplary. Have you noticed how little kids are incredibly quick to forgive? I don't know if you were like this, but when I became a brand new dad and Lindley became a brand new mom, we shared some common terror. And the terror was, We've never done this before. We're probably going to mess it up. Anybody else feel that as a, as a brand new parent? I mean, it's overwhelming. And you think, you, you bring this home this little kid, this little baby, and it's completely helpless, totally dependent on you. You think it's going to break. You know, if you put the diaper on too, too tight, you're going to cut the circulation off. They're going to lose both legs. I mean, you just, you freak out. And you think, what in the world's going on here? And, and you quickly learn, though, that little kids find it so easy to forgive. In the first two years of raising my oldest, my, our first, I know I made countless mistakes. I, I mean, I just made a ton load of them. Some of them were so significant that it brought me to tears. I mean, I made mistakes as a brand new dad. And uh, I'm here to tell you that no time in the first three years of my oldest one's life did I come into his room at night to tell him goodnight? No time did he say to me with arms crossed, Dad, you've just been blowing it the last three years. I'm fed up, I'm bitter, and uh, you're never going to be able to fix this. Have a nice life. I mean, that did not happen. He, th 
Every time I came into his room, no matter how many times that I had failed as a father, you know how you received me? Come on, Daddy. Give me a hug. Tell me you love me. Tell me a story. I mean, that's what it was. Why? Because kids are so quick to forgive. You know what that is? That's humility. Humility. You know, something else you learn about being a parent really quickly is that little kids believe everything you say. I mean, if you have a kid that is prone to get out of bed at night and come ask for a glass of water or help to go to the bathroom or whatever, you know, you, you, want, you learn really quickly and sometimes the hard way that you cannot tell that little kid there's a monster living underneath the bed. <laughs> if, if, if you do that, you're going to have a far worse problem on your hands than just the fact they want to get out of bed. They're not even going to want to go into the bed. I mean, because they're going to believe everything you say when you say it. Little kids just believe and they trust. They find it easy to trust. That's humility. Humility. If you want to have a kingdom perspective, if you want to see your life and its circumstances in such a way that reflects the way God sees them, you've got to choose to humble yourself. See, this seems to come very naturally for little kids, but for us, we have to make intentional choices every day to fight into humility, to choose to live in humility. And it's that fight, pressing into humility, that enables us to see what happens in our life circumstances better from God's perspective and then react appropriately in a way that reflects that we trust and believe in what God says. This little phrase, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, should recall the disciples' mind to another thing that Jesus said earlier on in his Sermon on the Mount. In fact, he started that sermon with this phrase. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You find the similarity there? You know to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven? Those who are poor in spirit, which is synonymous with humility. Being poor in spirit is becoming aware of your condition. And our condition is one of spiritual poverty. Here's what this means. It means that every single one of us, every one of us, in one form or another, has walked into sin in our lives such that apart from Jesus Christ, we are completely, shamefully separated from God because of our sin. We have no hope. We are helplessly lost in the poverty of sin. Every single one of us, apart from Christ, have a spiritual condition of complete and total poverty. And the poor in spirit, the humble, they embrace that condition. They realize their spiritual poverty. And it brings them to a clear recognition of their deep need for help. That's humility. And then you see from that position the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ, knowing our spiritual poverty, came and gave his life on the cross, rose again from the dead to demonstrate that he has overcome sin and death so that we might know without a doubt that he has taken our spiritual poverty on himself so that he became poor that we might become rich with the riches of his righteousness which he freely gives to those who trust in him because they recognize the poverty of their soul and they become poor in spirit and they humble themselves and they ask Christ to save them and to forgive them because without him they have no hope. Without humility... You cannot even enter the kingdom of God. And if you want to maintain a perspective on your life, no matter what you face, then you must fight hard to live in that humility. And the best way I know to fight hard to live in that humility is to respond to the rebuke and the truth of Jesus Christ that His way is right and left to ourselves, we choose the wrong way. But He has made provision for us to trust in Him and to experience forgiveness that changes our lives. The poor in spirit, the humble, they move consistently in their life towards a greater and greater kingdom perspective. They see things from God's perspective more and more the longer they live, such that they find great reasons to stop complaining about the things that are going on in their life, knowing that God's grace is sufficient right where they are. They find reasons to let go of bitterness because they recognize the great grace that's been extended to them in their spiritual poverty. They quit comparing themselves to others, looking for someone to make them feel better about themselves because they realize the only way to feel good about who I am is seeing that Christ loves me even though I'm a sinner. They stop living in self-righteousness, acting like they've actually accomplished the favor of God because they found that God's favor is only extended through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. It's just a lot better way to live. Humility. To such as these, belong the kingdom of heaven. You know, there's one more implication in the text that I don't want you to miss this morning. If you notice from the passage, the parents bring the kids to Jesus to lay hands on them and pray. And in verse 15 it says, Jesus laid his hands on them. And we can see from this exchange into the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus really cared about these kids. I love that about Christ. I love that he loves the humble. And that he loved these kids and he prayed for them. Did you know that this is the only place in the entire Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is recorded as praying for somebody? In fact, in all four Gospels, there's only one other occurrence of Jesus praying for somebody. And right here in the Gospel of Matthew, we see a picture of Christ praying for these kids that should, that should tell us he cared deeply about these kids. I found myself wondering this week, what, what did Jesus pray? I mean, can you imagine bringing your kids to Jesus Christ and getting to hear him say a prayer over them? 
wondering what impact did Jesus' prayer have on these little kids for the rest of their life. It's just a great picture of how much Jesus cared about them to actually lay his hands on them and pray for them. And, and here's the implication I want you to take away from that. If you are a parent, or if you have aspirations of someday being a parent, we need to imitate the parents in this passage. We need to be moms and dads who bring our kids to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is a Savior who loves it when parents bring their kids to Him. So I want to tell you a couple ways I want to encourage you as parents to bring your kids to Jesus Christ. I want you to bring your kids to Jesus Christ by way of the church. Here's what I mean by that. When you come into this building and you sit in your seat and you're standing there and you've got your kids next to you and the music begins and there's times of prayer and there's times of preaching and there's times of responding, if you are not engaging in singing and praying and listening to Jesus speak to you, if you are not engaging in worship in this place, you are not leading your kids to Jesus by way of the church. Let me just tell you, your kids are watching you. They're watching how you sing. They're watching how you worship. They're watching if you are listening for Jesus Christ to touch your life. They're watching how you respond. Every single Sunday, I call for some kind of response. Every Sunday, your kids are watching. If you're going to lead them to Jesus Christ by way of the church, you need to be engaging in worship. Here's what I mean by that. Do not just be a person who comes and sees. Be a person who leaves and obeys. And then tell your kids about it and let them see it. Do not come and see without leaving and obeying. And when you plug your kids into different activities around the church, you plug them into Awana, you plug them into children's Sunday school, you plug them, in, plug them into special activities. When you plug your kids into things, I recognize the reason you're doing that is so your kids can be encouraged and educated in a walk with Christ. And we take that very seriously. We're trying to make every effort to give your kids great training in this place. But when you plug your kids into those opportunities... Make sure you are plugged into opportunities where you're growing in Christ too. At some level, in some way, you've got to be involved in something in your life that reflects, I am seeking to grow in Christ just like I'm wanting you to seek to grow in Christ. Because listen, if you don't do that at some level in your life, you're going to discover that most kids will, will most likely reflect what you do and not what you say. And if you're pushing them to get involved in stuff, but you're not growing in Christ, do not think for one second that there's more likelihood for them to, to follow that than you. They're going to follow you. More often than not, your kids are going to follow what you do. And so when you put them into things to grow in Christ, make sure you are involved in things that will encourage you to grow in Christ. So please lead your kids to Jesus by way of the church. And secondly, most importantly, lead your kids to Jesus by way of the home. And I just want to address two issues here this morning, just briefly. I want you to lead your kids to Christ in the home by making sure you teach Scripture in your home. That you read Scripture to your kids, that you explain Scripture to your kids, that you expose them to God's Word. If you are not exposing your kids to God's Word in the home, 
you just might be teaching your kids that Jesus Christ is just not important enough to be a part of your family. Bring God's word alive in the home. If you're sitting there thinking, well, if I knew as much as you know, which would be totally crazy to think that, but if you were thinking that, then I'd teach the Bible in my home. Listen, the greatest teachers are simply great students who are learning and sharing what they learn. You need to be a student of God's word and then just share what you're learning with your kids. That will lead them to Jesus. It'll be more significant than anything they can get in this place. You need to lead your kids to Jesus in your home. The second area that you need to lead them to Jesus in the home is the area of discipline. There's nothing like a good whipping lead a kid to Jesus Christ. It'll work. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that this morning because I'm going to address it later in the month on a Sunday night. But I do want to read a couple of passages of Scripture to you to encourage you in the area of discipline. And in all seriousness, we need to be parents who discipline our children so that they are ready to respond to the discipline of God that calls them back to himself. And so let me just read a few passages of Scripture to you, knowing that you are going to deal with this in depth later on a Sunday night. Let me just give you a little encouragement. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son. You keep back the rod of discipline, it's not loving. Proverbs 19, 18, Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his destruction. You don't discipline him. You're basically saying, I don't care what he does, what happens to him. Proverbs 22, 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> My three kids are proof of that, I promise you. Listen to the last part of that verse. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from hell. Proverbs 29, 15, and 17 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Correct your son. He will give you comfort. He'll be a delight to your soul. Be sure, moms and dads, you're bringing your kids to Jesus Christ. Now this week as you reflect on this exchange between Jesus' disciples and these little kids, I hope you remember this. Choose humility. The disciples didn't. Got them into trouble. Look what the disciples were doing. They were hindering little kids from coming to Jesus. Did that ring a bell for anybody? Does the word millstone come back to anybody's mind here? The disciples were hindering children from coming to Jesus. They were becoming a stumbling block. We don't want to do that. Humility. Now notice what Jesus did when the disciples were on the verge of being this huge stumbling block for these kids. What did he do? He rebuked them. What was he being right there? He was being the seeking shepherd, seeking after a lost sheep, bringing them back from being a stumbling block to walking with him with a kingdom perspective. We don't want to do that either. We don't want to create stumbling blocks and we want to listen to the rebuke of Jesus. So if you're going to respond to this message today, here's the greatest way you can respond. You need to be coming to Jesus. Every single one of us. 
humbling ourselves, coming to Christ, the provision for our forgiveness, our loving Savior, our King. Come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you need to be bringing people with you. You need to be bringing your kids. You need to be bringing your neighbors. You need to be bringing your coworkers. You need to come to Jesus and bring everyone you can to Christ. That's what needs to flavor our lives, and it will when we choose humility. And we should never, ever, ever hinder anyone from coming to Christ by being distracted or disoriented by the circumstances of our lives. The only way to overcome that? Humility. Humility. You know, we're not all going to agree about Matthew's teaching about Jesus and the divorce issue, verses 1 through 12. We're not all going to agree on that. But what we must not do in this place is allow that to become a disorienting, distracting experience for our church. We must all choose humility and move towards Jesus Christ. We're not all going to agree on everything in this book. But you know what we all can do? We can all come to Jesus. And we can seek to bring as many people as we can with us. And we can seek to live our lives in such a way we don't hinder anybody from coming to Christ. That's humility. And it's to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven.